make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Hi, and welcome, everybody. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Super stoked to be here today with my special guest, Guy Guido. Let me tell you about him. Guy is a graduate of the NYU Tisch School of the Arts, Film, and TV. He made his feature film debut in March 2019 with his movie, Madonna and the Breakfast Club, the incredible story of the pop icon struggling early years in New York with her musician boyfriend, Dan Gilroy, and their band, Breakfast Club. The film is distributed by The Orchard Films 1091 Media and is currently in a streaming deal with Hulu and was named by Billboard in the top 10 music films of 2020. Guy is currently developing more feature films in the areas of iconic entertainment biographies, as well as teen and young adult music-infused dramas. Guy, welcome. So stoked you're here. I'm excited to talk to you about your journey in making Madonna and the Breakfast Club. I love the movie. I learned so much about her from watching the movie that I didn't know. Where did you get the inception for the idea? How'd you get onto that trail? That's a twofold answer. I'm gonna start with um, why I made a documentary film um, as, a, as a narrative screenwriter. Um, it's always, as a first-time filmmaker, you know, you're always going to come across this issue with um, having the stigma of being a first-time filmmaker. Um, and how do you get past that? How do you get how do you get um, through those gates um, without having made a first film? Um, and Financially, it's always difficult to get things off the ground because uh, films cost a lot of money to make, especially narrative films. Um, and if you're not the one paying for it, it's difficult to get financiers uh, to feel secure in investing their money in someone who, in their mind, you know, it has not, you know, done, you know, something significant yet. Um, but doesn't mean you're not, you know, capable of doing it but understandably it's a risk. Um, so I wanted to find a project that I felt I could feasibly get off the ground financially that wouldn't cost that much money to make, um, that would also have some narrative uh, elements to it as well to show that side of my, uh, my ability as director. Um, this, then in, in trying to find out what the subject matter would be, that's when it came back to um, where is there uh, an idea for me that I'd be passionate about telling? 
um, what is a story that hasn't been told that I find interesting enough to spend a couple of years of my life, um, you know, discovering, researching, and 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 making. Um, I was a fan of Madonna as a teenager and early adolescent years, you know, um, and I think that I always kind of, I mean, I'm always fascinated with the origin stories of uh, iconic figures. Um, how did it happen? You know, who were they before we were introduced to them? And, you know, and we see them as these incredible, you know, fully fleshed out stars in music video and um, how they're presented to us. But, but, you know, who was the regular person before that? And that's what I wanted to discover for myself. And um, those were the seeds of how it got started. Yeah, that's really interesting. So tell me about the steps that you actually took in terms of making the film. With a documentary project, um, as opposed to a narrative project, the script is a lot, it, it, the script develops as you go along. So you have a general idea of um, the story that you want to tell, but you really, the research is where it comes alive. Um, you have to start somewhere, of course. So um, my initial contact was um, once I found out that Madonna had this band before she had a record deal, I um, reached out to one of the bandmates. Um, and that person and I developed, you know, a friendship online and started, you know, um, discussing possibilities. And he was a little hesitant to want to tell me the story at first. Um, and I had to be sort of understanding of that and sort of, uh, you know, just, you know, be gentle with how, how much I, I pushed. And, um, you know, it's always a dance when you are, you know, doing a documentary um, or, or really when you're when you're asking anything of anyone, you know, um, you don't want to be too pushy, but at the same time, you know, you have your goals. So um, eventually I was able to convince him to, to tell me the story uh, of those early years. And once I had him on board, it was easier for me to get the rest of the bandmates and the rest of the key players in the story, you know, because, okay, well, Dan is doing it. Oh, okay, maybe, maybe I'll do it too. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, financially, uh, I had nothing. I, I, in the beginning, I mean, there was no money to make this film. Um, I did have a day job. So uh, what I did was uh, I, I, I found a DP who was, you know, the first person I needed. Uh, we need someone to shoot my first interview. So I can't afford a really, you know, established DP. So I'm just going to put some feelers out and find someone who might be good at what he does, but doesn't really have any major credits, you know, and might want one, you know, and, and is willing to do it for, you know, a lot less than he's worth because he wants that feature film credit. And uh, so I was able to find that person and, you know, I made a deal with him to pay him $200 a day, um, which was something I could afford 
initially to get, you know, a couple of interviews done. And once that was done and I had those things in the can, you know, two or three interviews, I was able to take that and put together a pitch. This is the project I'm doing. This is the story. These are the people that have agreed to do it. And are you interested? And when I say pitch, I mean to sales representatives. That's where I started pitching to see if I could find interest there. Because once I had interest with salespeople, I knew I could get the rest of the money that I would need to make the film. Guy, how did you find them? The sales reps? So, um, and this is where it goes back to, I think, what, what you, Kaya, always uh, talk about, which is um, your wolf pack. Um, I had worked with someone, my first career was in hair and makeup. So um, a friend of mine did a couple of feature films and uh, indie films. And his, his last feature before this project um, was a film called The Challenger with uh, the late Michael Clark Duncan. And he asked me if I would be the key makeup person on the film, again, for very little money. Um, and I was willing to do that for him as a friend, um, but also because I asked him, I said, look, I'm not really that concerned with the makeup credit, but I would like an associate producer credit for doing this which he agreed to. So I had this friend now in this person and someone in my book pack. So I went to him who I knew had dealt with sales reps before and could potentially help me. And I said, Hey, this is the project I'm working on. Um, could you help me potentially get a sales rep? And in exchange for that, I will give you a co-producer credit on the project. So he agreed to do that. And he came up with a list of, within his circle, 10 or so sales reps. And he reached out to them with my pitch. <clears throat> and um, every one of them was interested. Um, but as it goes, you know, they were hesitant because there was no film yet. It was just a pitch. And so most of them said, we're interested in this, but we want to see at least a rough cut. One company said, we're interested in this and we want to make a deal now. And that company was Lotus. So I think Lotus recognized um, that there was something here and that they should get in now and uh you know and take that risk and early. lotus is who i used to work for which we just had yeah. that like coincidentally <laughs> yeah that was that was funny yeah and so yeah so they agreed to, to make a deal and so what happened early on is so we, i signed with lotus and then I was able to get some money. And when I say money, I'm not talking about millions of dollars. 
uh, $15,000. I was able to, you know, convince someone um, to, to give me that to get started. Um, and so with that money, uh, I was able to now start my narrative reenactments, which was important because in putting together the visual trailer that Lotus needed to go out and sell this thing, we needed some more than just talking heads. So I went out and I filmed some reenacted scenes with actors playing the parts of all these stories that we're talking about in the interviews. And uh, we shot a trailer that was, well, an ex it's more than a trailer, it was more like an extended seven minute trailer that Lotus then used and went out to um, the, um, the film market in LA. And based on that seven minute clip, they were able to sell the film, pre-sell the film in 12 different countries uh, right there. And I was only maybe a quarter into making the movie and we already sold all of those territories. And with that, I was able to then raise another 15,000 to continue. And then finally, another 50, a third $15,000 to, to finish. And so I think for me, I think the biggest, the biggest point that I would like to make with, with uh, making this movie, having it, having it work out the way that it did was um, my belief in it, my belief that I could do it, my belief that this was something that was going to sell and my and the passion that I had for it. And because I was so passionate about it, about the idea that that just bleeds over into when you're trying to sell it to other people. If you really believe in it, they can sense that they feel that, um, you know, and it, it just really gets them excited about it. And even, even financially, like the first person that I got involved financially was a dear friend of mine. And I honestly, and I mean this, I, I would not have had her risk that $15,000 if I didn't truly believe she was going to at least make that money back. You know, I knew it, you know, and so, um, I think that's really, really important to have when you're developing a project. You have to really feel uh, that, I mean, not everyone likes to hear this, you know, the business side of it, but when you're talking about creative things, but it is a business, it's an industry and it's based on profit, you know, and if it, it it, it's not it's not a nonprofit situation where you're just making art, right? I mean, you want to sell it. We want to, you know, people people want to invest in you. Yeah, they have to like you, but they have to believe they're gonna they're gonna make money. So I think it's really important when you're developing anything, whether it be you know narrative or a narrative documentary hybrid like this was, that 
the subject matter is something that you really believe there's a market for and that it, that it can sell. Oh, so smart of you to, uh, strategically to do it that way. And I'm so curious how you cast your lead actress uh, for the role of Madonna, because she is absolutely scintillating on screen and just brought so much vitality and energy and looked just like her. It was incredible. I don't know how you found her. Tell us about that. Um, I will say quickly that, again, back to the idea of passion um, and not to get all hokey or spiritual in any way, but when, when you believe in something and put it into motion and take the steps, somehow, out of whatever you want to call it, the universe conspires. And in answer to your question with how I found our lead actor, Jamie, um, I was trying to cast this the traditional route to casting directors and agencies. Um, and I had someone almost cast, someone who she'd done some multiple TV series and um, she was very excited. We, we had a meeting. Um, we even put together the paperwork. Um, but when it came down to making the financial deal, which she would have done it, regardless of the money, she was really excited about doing it. But the union, SAG, for, for, for whatever reason, um, I found this out, um, and it's good for everybody to know, um, when you're doing a documentary and you want to use a SAG actor, the minimum that you can pay them is $900 a day, regardless of your budget, regardless of, you know, and that's the minimum they will agree to with a documentary film. With a narrative film, you can pay them on deferred basis or $100 a day or whatever, whatever depending on your, on your budget contract. Yeah. But depending on your budget, you have different scales of what you can pay your, your, your SAG actors. But with a documentary, it has to be $900 a day. I think that's because in documentaries, usually there aren't actors. Usually it might just be a narrator and it's one person and it's probably one day. So they put the stipulation in. So I figure it's going to be like a day rate, essentially, for some small little piece of this. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. In my case, I wanted her for a lot more than a day. And, and I will say the union tried to work with me. They tried to find a loophole, but there wasn't. So because of that, I, and we were about to start filming in about two weeks. I had my crew set. We were about to start. And suddenly this whole thing fell apart. Then go back to the girl who I cast. Uh, walking around the city on a Sunday, I went into this donut store and I see this girl behind the counter who bears this striking resemblance to a young Madonna. And I'm looking at her and I, I said to myself, you know what, just look away. We have somebody, just leave it alone. You're obsessed, just go away. <laughs> so. I walked away, then came back the next weekend, saw her again, and I said to my husband, 
look at that girl. Do you see what I see? And he's like, oh yeah, I can see that. Then everything fell apart with this actress. I was out of town. I called my husband. Like I said, we were about to start filming in two weeks. I said, go talk to the donut girl. <laughs> see, yeah, see what's maybe, I don't know. Maybe she wants to be an actor. I have no idea what about anything about her. I can't imagine she's just working in a donut store. Maybe she, maybe she has, I don't know, just go talk to her. So he did, and he, he explained as good as he could, you know, the situation. And here's my husband's business card. Has anyone ever told you you resemble Madonna? He's doing this project. And so she, she was definitely, you know, um, she was curious, but she was a little, you know, maybe concerned, you know, so she called her yeah, mom. Understandably. <laughs> yeah, she was only 20. She, she called her mother and told her mom, and her mom said, okay, well, meet them in a public place and see what it's about. So I, I met her at a Starbucks and laid it all out for her, what we were doing, and she was very excited to do it. Uh, she was actually a fashion major at FIT, and uh, she had done some modeling and stuff when she was younger, so she was really into it. Um, and we just jumped right in. I mean, I put her immediately in with an acting coach, a drumming coach, a guitar coach, uh, you know, uh, dancing lesson, all very quickly um, so that we could get her up to speed. Um, and, you know, giving her, you know, tons of movies and video clips of watch and Madonna, you know, getting the inflections down and the mannerisms and, you know, and that's how, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. That is a phenomenal story. Everyone should go talk to the donut girl. <laughs> yeah, the donut girl. <laughs> that is that is amazing. So talk to us about, you know, filming the movie and how how what happened. The pieces just kept falling into place. Um where this all happened for Madonna at that time, a couple of these locations, the major places where it all occurred, where she learned how to play uh, the drums and guitar, and where she first you know, got her chops in music was this abandoned synagogue in Queens. That's where, that's where she lived with these bandmates. So that place still exists. And it looks pretty much the way it looked at the time. And um, one of my interview subjects still lived there. So we were able to reenact all of this where it actually happened, which yeah. was magical. It was, it, was, it was incredible. Even the drum set that she learned to play drums on, uh, and there's photographs of her playing drums back in 1979 you know, on this drum set, is still there in the room. Wow. And, uh, you know, yeah, it has like little pieces of gum that she would stick on, you know, still there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, 
And then from there, uh, she lived in a place called the Music Building, uh, which was a place for bands and musicians, you know, just to go and rehearse, little room spaces to go rehearse in. Um, and that place also still exists and is used for the same reason. And those people agreed to let me film in the building. So we, we filmed all that stuff in the place that she lived in, rehearsed in. You know, you weren't supposed to live there, but she lived there at the time too. She would just squat, squat there. Um, so it was kind of magical. And I tried to, because uh, sometimes when you're filming, you know, you're just in the mode of working and your adrenaline's going and you're just, you know, let's get this next shot. We just, you know, you're not really thinking about, you know, emotionally, you know, where you are and how fun is this. You just want to get the job done. So, but I would actually stop myself from time to time to just kind of take it in, you know, because, you know, this is like something kind of a once in a lifetime thing. It's a story that, you know, is only going to be told this way once, you know, and, and here we are doing it, you know. Um, so that was, that was really, it was really incredible for me, you know, as having been a fan you know, back, way back, you know. I love that. How, how did the movie come to find distribution on Hulu? So Lotus, uh, you know, like I said, Lotus took on uh, international sales, um, worldwide sales, actually. Um, so they made all kinds of deals all over the world, but our domestic deal, um, what happens is when you when, when you get into a distribution situation, generally the sales reps will sell your film internationally without you having much input. Um, they kind of just go ahead and make the deals for you. You have an idea of where they think the ballpark figure is going to be with these territories, but they're not going to stop and ask you every time they're going to make a deal. What do you think? You know, they're just going to keep going and make the deals. But when it comes to the domestic deal, they, at least in my case, gave me a lot more input. So they said, okay, here's three different companies domestically that are interested. Let's speak with all of them on the phone. Let's see what you feel about them. And then we'll decide who you want to go with. And so uh, we did that and I decided, uh, because of this company's enthusiasm for the project to go with the Orchard films domestically. So the Orchard films took over all of our domestic deals and they went ahead and they made the deal with Hulu. So that happened through the Orchard. And Hulu, um, it was a great deal. Um, and then I think it, the film must be doing very well for them because they, they renewed us again for another term, which uh, was great. Yeah, it's, it was exciting, you know. Um, you know, when you're making a deal with a streamer, you don't, and maybe this will change in the future because things have cha are changing so much every day, but as of now, um, you don't see any money past your initial licensing deal. That's right. your deal. No back end. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter how many times somebody watches your movie on Hulu. 
you got your money and you're done. But it must be doing well for them. They must be getting a lot of views for them to want to pay, again, pay more money for another term. Oh, I love that. I'm so happy for you. Yeah. That's a great movie. Thank you. Talk to me about your, you have great long game strategy as a writer director. You made this movie knowing that you could parlay your way into making more scripted features. So talk to me about your strategy and what's happening for you now. So the, the first uh, movie I wanted to get off the ground was a narrative feature called Love in Brooklyn. It's a teenage romance dance movie. Um, which I've always been a fan of, you know, it, it's, it's light. It's, uh, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's a, it's a romantic, it's a young love story, um, kind of a fish out of water, boy meets girl, different sides of the tracks, you know, what's going to happen and you're along for the ride to watch it happen. And there's a lot of music and dancing and kind of like a dirty dancing type of film. Um, when I wrote that script, uh, it, it made a little noise um, online. There was a person called, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this guy who calls himself Script Shadow. No. Um, so about 10 years ago was when I wrote this script. Um, he was pretty well known in the online screenwriting community. And he had this newsletter that he would send out, uh, basically talking about scripts that he liked. And if he liked your script, the agencies would be calling you and scripts were getting sold by this person's word of mouth. So I thought, okay, but he also did coverage. He also did script coverage. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna hire this guy to do some coverage on my script hoping that he likes it enough to talk it up. And that's what happened. So he, he gave me coverage, I, you know, gave me notes, and I, I made some changes based on his notes. And he didn't even tell me about it, but his, his uh, newsletter came out, the top 2012 unproduced scripts. And mine was in there. And with that, Dwayne Adler, who's the, the guy who wrote the movie Step Up, you know, the Step Up. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Early, early Channing Tatum. It was like the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which became a franchise of movies, you know. Um, he called me um, from seeing that newsletter. Um, and I saw this number coming in from LA. I was back in New York. And had I known he was calling, I probably would have been panicked and <laughs> uh, like not answered maybe. I don't know. Um, but I had no idea. So I just picked up, oh, hello, you know. Um, and he said who he was and that he heard about this script and if it was available, he'd like to read it. And I sent him the script. He loved it. And he asked if um, I was going to be in LA anytime soon, where we could meet. I wasn't, but I said, actually, I'm going to be there next weekend. <laughs> you know, I'm making plans. Coincidentally. Book a flight. <laughs> uh, and, 
and went there and uh, met with him and you know some of his team and we talked we talked it through we talked about a, a potential collaboration he wanted to put his name on it he loved it and some other people that were involved in it I can't get into too many of the details but I was kind of being edged out as the director. Yeah. Now this is before Madonna and the Breakfast Club. Okay. So I was being edged out um, as directing the movie and I almost agreed to it, but then I just couldn't. I just, this was such a passion project for me um, that I didn't want to walk away from it as the director. Um, I was willing to waive my directing fees Wait, oh, wow. whatever, take sale for the script, whatever. Right. I just wanted to direct it. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't, it, it, we couldn't figure out a way to do that because of me being a first time director. Right. So we kind of just put it to the side and we left on, you know, cordial terms. Um, and that's when I said, okay, I have to make a movie. And that's when I made Madonna in the Breakfast Club. So now I'm back to Love in Brooklyn. And I've been, you know, uh, in contact with Dwayne again. Um, and he has expressed being interested again. Uh, but I don't want to completely open the door yet until I'm a little further along with financing now. Right. So... That's where I am right now. I'm putting something together financially, uh, hopefully. Um, you know, it's still, it's still in the works with the financial finders I'm working with. Um, we were just on the phone today, just going through some last minute tweaks with their pitch. Um, Jack, incidentally, who was my sales rep for the Madonna movie, also loves Love in Brooklyn and they signed on to be the, the worldwide sales reps for Love in Brooklyn. And they want to go out, hopefully at the next market. Um, yeah, November. Yeah. Um, and, but they want to start attaching some talent. Um, so what we're hoping to do is in the next month or so, get at least a good amount of seed money in so that we can make some talent offers, make some attachments, so that Jack can go to the market and start pre-selling this. So going back to, again, what you talk about with the Wolfpack. Yep. You know, again, I, I am back. Now I'm back with Jack. I remember asking you, like, when was the last time you talked to Jack, guy? <laughs> yeah, and I did. And, you know, and... Having Jack agree to, you know, have his company now be the sales reps, that means a lot when you're going for financing because the finances feel more secure because the sales reps are able to give you some financial projections of what they think they can sell this movie for, which makes the financers say, okay, there's at least a good chance I'm going to make my money back, you know. Makes so much sense. You've gone about this so intelligently. And I see how you've stitched yourself into the project as a director because bringing in the financing means it's your project. You're doing it. 
Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, you know, like some people, you know, some people maybe disagreed with me, like at the time, well, guy, you know, you'll still be the writer on it, you know? And maybe if, um, I don't want to say just being a writer because, you know, writing is enormous, you know, and obviously I know what it takes to write a script, it's how hard it is. Um, but the reason I dove into screenwriting is because I want to direct. And so I thought, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's probably one of the hardest things to do is become a director straight out, straight up director, just out of the gate director. Um, I think, uh, I don't want to say easier, but um, I guess somewhat easier path, maybe, uh, at least for me, the way I was strategizing was write a great script that you can leverage into directing it. That makes so much sense. So what's next for you now? So aside from uh, up in Brooklyn, I'm working on a, another biographical story. I can't say who it's about publicly um, at, the time, at this time, um, because um, this is all learning process too, if anyone's ever thinking about doing anything biographical. Um, there's, you know, there's legal things you have to think about and, and it, it's good to know these things. So I, I can share some of this. Um, if you are going to make a biographical movie about anyone, a narrative movie, if you can make a documentary, it's a lot easier legally to make about, about some biographical because documentary filmmakers are kind of seen as almost um, journalistic. So you're doing something that, so to, there's a lot more leeway in what you can get away with in the same way um, a journalist for a newspaper could write a story about anyone, you know, um, and, and that's okay, it's newsworthy. So a documentary can get in under the same loopholes of news. Uh, but when you're doing a narrative project, you don't have that same thing. So you do not need the life rights from someone. It's helpful if you can get them, of course. It'll just make things a lot smoother. Um, but you do not need them. The only thing is, you, the law tends to lean in favor of the filmmakers in cases like that. If, 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 if a celebrity or someone was to try to sue you, they do lean in favor of the storyteller. As long as you're not doing something that is an outright lie, and when I say an outright lie, I don't mean, um, you know, she drove, you know, a Volkswagen bug when she really drove a Camaro. Right. That's not a lie. They don't care. An outright lie has to be something like she planned on killing her mother, which she never did. Right. It has to be something really bad. You know, that's a, an obvious lie. So that's number one they'd have to prove. And number two, not only do they have to prove that you lied, but two, that your intention was to harm them. Like so to disparage? 
what's that? Like to disparage them? Yes. Yes. That you intended to. So they would have to prove those two things in order to win a lawsuit. Now that, that said, they can still sue you and they can still financially ruin you mm. because they can afford, you know, attorneys and, and to drag this thing on in ways that quash the film. Even though you might win the case, financially, you know, they can make things difficult. Um, so, you know, there's that. But the other issue is, um, which is why I, I can't say who it is yet, um, when you are writing something biographical, what you want to do is write the story first, have this have it vetted by attorneys that are really fluent in the law pertaining to biographical stories, have it vetted by, by them, and then go ahead and get your E&O insurance, which is your errors and omissions insurance, which protects you from that person suing you with a project. Now, an errors and omissions uh, insurance company is going to be much more likely to give you that insurance if your project was vetted by a reputable attorney in that area, who I would always recommend Donaldson and Califf for that. They are well-known and they're the go-to people in that whole world. Um, they're who I use, um, who I used for the Madonna one and who I'm using for this. Um, so once you get your script vetted by them and then have your insurance, then you can go out to whomever your subject is and say, hey, I'm doing this project about you and I would love to share it with you. I would love your input. I would love your participation if you wanted that, um, which I do. Um, in the project, I would love your approval and all of those things. You say it to them then because you already have your insurance. Because if that person says no, on the record, before you have your insurance, you're not going to be able to get insurance. <gasps> wow. Because the, one of the questions the ENO insurance company will ask you is, has, have you asked this person and has this person said no? So you just have to have not asked them yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. 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 So that's oh. what that's what uh that's what I'm working on. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, I've got my fingers crossed for you for everything you're working on. Uh, I can't wait. When it's keep, you have to keep us posted. We're all so excited. Yeah. Uh, it, my last question for you is really, especially because we're filming live in front of the Entertainment Business School students, many of whom are indie filmmakers, writer, directors. Do you have any tips that you'd love to share with them? Any mistakes to avoid that you'd recommend that they keep an eye out? 
Yeah, um, gosh, I guess, you know, financially, I would say uh, when it comes to narrative films, um, I was naive when I was first trying to get Love and Brooklyn off the ground. And I spent a lot of money in developing it, um, not realizing, you know, to wait until it's a little further along and you have some solid attachments before investing any of your own money really um, in things like that. You know, um, also I think um, it's important, like I said earlier, whatever you're developing to really believe that it's something marketable. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that you know, because it's, it's about the art and creativity, but, and it is, of course, you want to write something that's great, but if people don't think that they can sell it, you're just, you're just setting yourself way back. You know, um, what else? There was something... Oh, this is a big one. Uh, if you're doing something independently, if you're making a film independently, pay yourself. Um, because lots of times, you know, as artists, you know, we just want, we want our stuff to get out there. And, and we're willing to, you know, just take the hit. And, you know, and, and, you know, look, you have to somewhat in the beginning, you know, I wore every hat probably in making Madonna movie, you know, uh, so and that's okay. But I didn't pay myself like I paid everybody else got a salary, you know, for, for the work they were doing, you know, and I, I didn't. And I think, you know, uh, yes, I'm making money now. And, you know, that will continue to trickle in. But Sometimes it doesn't always work out that way, you know, and I think it's, it's just important for your, for your own just, you know, sense of productivity and stuff, you know, just to pay yourself something. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.